Welcome to Practical Christian Living. We've known for years that people were going to scoff the coming of Jesus. I always thought it would be outside of the church, but now the scoffing's coming from inside of the church. Listen, one day the sky will part and Jesus will come through in all of his glory. And Peter says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These come from the Word of God. These are Old Testament passages that have been fulfilled. People, even fellow believers, may mock us when we declare that we are waiting for Jesus to return, to rapture His church and come again in all His glory. Peter declared that he saw the power and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was transfigured on the mountain. God's prophetic word is true. It has and will come to pass, so be ready. Here's part two of 2 Peter 1, 12 through 19 with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. A lot of people point out the inconsistencies in the scriptures. And we could talk about that and we've done it before. There are 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. This goes back to uh, things that were written before copiers. And there are good manuscripts and there are bad manuscripts. So you've got these guys with their, with their testimony and they write their testimony while there's people alive. The manuscripts go back and the oldest piece of manuscript evidence that we have is 125 years from 90 to 125. Follow what I'm saying now. Critics for hundreds of years and decades said that the New Testament wasn't written until three or 400 AD because it's got too much, too much miraculous stuff in it. It's too put together for an ancient book. It had to be worked on. It had to be written well after the fact of Christianity. It speaks too much about what, what happened in Christianity. However, they've discovered manuscripts that go all the way back to the second century and one of them that is dated all the way back to the first century. We're talking about 99 and before. If we have a piece of Mark that can be dated between 90 and 125, the thought that you have the a piece of the original there has to be copies of copies of copies already for you to get a piece of one that's dated back that far. That the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were, were hidden in 66, have several fragments that make references to the New Testament. Tells us that the New Testament goes back to at least 66. And you can criticize that it would be farther, but you got to go back to that manuscript evidence. But here's the thing. This evidence has been found recently within the last, say, 50 years. Yeah, maybe 60, maybe 65 years. These pieces of evidence have been found and still professors aren't changing it. They're still saying, well, the New Testament was written three to 400 years A.D. And not hanging on to the, to the truth or not changing things. They're hanging on to that which they believe before. He says, moreover, or verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where, where does Peter put his focus when he's talking about being an eyewitness? When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says later on, he's going to say in the last days, scoffers are going to arise and scoff is coming. We've known for years that people were going to scoff the coming of Jesus. I always thought it would be outside of the church, but now the scoffing's coming from inside of the church. Listen, one day the sky will part and Jesus will come through in all of his glory. 
And Peter says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These come from the word of God. These are Old Testament passages that have been fulfilled. And he says, we saw them. He says, I saw a preview. In verse 17. Well, let's go back um, to 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, I saw it. I saw when he was transformed. He's not just saying, I saw Jesus raise someone from the dead, or I saw Jesus do a miracle, or I saw Jesus feed the 5,000. He's saying, I saw him transformed. He says in verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from heaven, the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, in Matthew, early on in Matthew, it says, Jesus says to his disciples, some of you here will not die until the Son of Man comes in his glory. When I was 14 years old, I received Christ into my life and I began to read the Bible. In my little room, on my desk, I began to read the Good News for Modern Man translation. And when I read that, some of you here will not die until the Son of Man comes in his glory. It confused me because those guys were all dead. I knew that. And so I kind of pushed it aside. When I got a chance, I asked my youth pastor, what does it mean? when he says that you guys won't die until the coming of the Lord. He goes, well, read on. Did you read to keep reading? I said, no. He goes, well, keep reading. It'll make sense. And so the very next thing that happens is that he takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountaintop, a high mountaintop. We believe that it's Mount Hermon. And while he's there, his robe gets as bright as any launderer could make it. And he is there in his glory so that those who were there who were alive saw him in his glory. This is a preview of the kingdom that's going to come. It's a preview of the Jesus that you and I are going to see. And Moses and Elijah suddenly appeared and began to talk with Jesus. And Peter, he felt like he had to say something. I don't know why. Do you guys know anybody like that? Maybe you're like that. You just feel like I got to add something here. What can Peter possibly add? You have the son of God, Moses and Elijah. And Peter says, it is good that we are here. I know Jesus said, no, duh. <laughs> they, they almost looked at Peter like, are you serious? And then he says, let's build a tabernacle, one for Moses and one for Jesus and one for Elijah. And then a voice from heaven opens up and interrupts him and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I love that Peter changed this event that God wanted to come up and say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But he needed to tell Peter, be quiet. Little shuddy on your part would be good. You listen to him. Stop blabbering about building tabernacles for these guys. And Peter's saying, I saw it. And I heard the voice. The fact that he talks about three people hearing the voice is important because some people will say, well, he hallucinated. He thought he saw it. People hallucinate. People have mental illness and they hallucinate. People have stress and they'll hallucinate. People take certain drugs and they'll hallucinate. Maybe something happened and he hallucinated this, but there were other people that did it. And so the criticism is, well, there's mass hallucinations. There is mass hallucinations, but mass hallucinations never have detail in them. They are general. Mass hallucinations are general. It's what a crowd thinks happened. And it's very general. It doesn't have details like a robe that shines brighter than a launderer could launder it. Like Moses and Elijah showing up. You don't all of a sudden have a thousand people that hallucinate at the same time. I saw Moses and Elijah. That's too detailed. 
in mass hysteria today, you have very general things that happen, but no details. This is very detailed. So Peter says, I'm an eyewitness of it and I saw it. But he's going to say, don't believe me just because of that. There's power to our eyewitnesses that we have the, the reports of. And there's power in a common shared experience. When I was 14 years old, I gave my life to Christ and Jesus came in and transformed me. And my life has been changed ever since. You guys have testimonies that are just like that. Different dates, different times, different places, same Savior. And so we have a common shared experience. Now, don't put, don't think that that's worth nothing. If, if someone here says, I put a crystal around my neck and it changed my life. I became a whole new person. Then you say, I gave my life to Jesus and I became a whole new person. I rubbed bananas on my head and I became a whole new person. I became a Mormon and it changed my life. I became a Jehovah Witness and it changed my life. Now, you go back and you look at the weight of the shared experience. How many people have put crystals on and claim it changed their life? Well, it would be in the thousands, tens of thousands. Maybe you'd be able to get a few hundred thousand, part of the New Age movement, who would say, the power of crystals has changed my life. You go over to, we'll skip Christians, we'll come back to that. You go over to the guy that rubbed bananas on his head and said that that changed his life. What's the shared experience behind him? Probably nothing. There's probably nobody else you could find that said, I rubbed bananas on my head and changed my life. So we can believe that he is bananas. Not nuts, but bananas, right? There's weight. There's more weight to the guy that put a crystal on than there is the guy that rubbed bananas on his head because there's nobody else that believes it. There's no shared experience. Then you go to the Mormons and there's a large number that say, I had a burning in my heart. I asked God, God, show me if it was true to believe. And I had a burning in my heart and I felt it. And then you go to the Jehovah Witnesses. Oh, I, I, I've become a witness and it changed my life when I became a witness. There's a number of them behind them. But none of them, none of them has the kind of history, numbers, and people that Christianity has. You and I have a shared experience, our testimony. Back in history, we have shared experiences that goes way past Muhammad, way past back into the time of the disciples. And we have a broad range of people who believed it in all of these different centuries who followed and trusted in Christ. That is not, I don't know that that would ever be enough to persuade me. I, I would never go, if that was the only evidence you had for Christianity, I would not go, oh, I think I'm going to become a Christian by that. However, it can't be ignored. It might not be evidence that can prove it 100%, but it can't be ignored that there are all of these shared experiences that go all the way back. There's also the eyewitness evidence that's part of it. And then he says this, for he received from God the Father honor and glory and such a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard the voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. What Peter is saying is, I have the prophetic word. That is, the Bible is the word of God. The word reference here is to the scriptures. And he says, we have the scriptures that are prophetic, that are confirmed. That he saw these prophecies come true right in front of him. And it's not just an experience that Peter had in the more sure word, but it's you and me. Why do we believe what we believe? If shared experience isn't enough, or eyewitnesses isn't enough, or the dating of manuscripts going back isn't enough for someone to believe? then what is enough? Prophecy that has been fulfilled. See, we could piece together what the Messiah would look like from the Old Testament. For example, it said that he would be from the tribe of Judah. 
that the scepter would not depart from Judah. The scepter is what a king used to rule. It won't depart from Judah. So the Messiah had to be from the tribe of Judah. That means if Jesus was from Benjamin or Ishkar or Dan, he couldn't have been the Messiah. He, it had to be from Judah. We also know that it had to come through the lineage of David, which being from Judah cuts out, well, 11 twelfths of the, can I say that in a better way? I don't think I can. I can't reduce it. I'm so bad at math. But anyway, 11 twelfths. It cuts out 11 twelfths of Jews that are alive. And plus, he has to be a Jew. It has to be someone who's Jewish. And then he has to be from the tribe of Judah. And then it has to be through the lineage of David. It has to be, and David, you know, wasn't around all that long. So he had to be in the lineage of David because the Bible said that he would sit upon the throne of David and he would be of his offspring, the Bible said. And then this person who would be from the tribe of Judah, who would be in the lineage of David, was going to be born in Bethlehem. Because the Bible says, you, O Bethlehem, though you are small among the villages, out of you will come a ruler whose days are from everlasting. I love when people try to say, well, it doesn't mean that that ruler was going to be the Messiah. What does it mean that his days were from everlasting? That means he's the Messiah. So now you have to have a guy from Judah who goes through David, who has a descendant that goes all the way back to David, who was born in Bethlehem. Then the Bible says that he had to be called out of Egypt. How do you have somebody born in Bethlehem called out of Egypt? Well, we know that uh, Joseph flees from Herod and ends up going into Egypt. And when Herod dies, God calls him out of Egypt. It fulfills the scripture. As the Bible says, I will call my son out of Egypt. So now you have somebody from the tribe of Dan who has the lineage of David, who is born in Bethlehem, who's called out of Egypt. And then the Bible says, and he will be called a Nazarene. So now you've got a guy that would be called a Nazarene. So they settle in the city of Nazareth, which fulfills it. And so now it makes it even narrower. How many people in all of history were of the tribe of Judah, were from the lineage of David, were born in Bethlehem, were called out of Egypt, who were Nazarenes. And we can continue. We can continue with things that are much more harder to fulfill than these little five prophecies I've given you. Like Psalms 22 that says they crucified him. They put nails in his hands and feet, that he looked at his body and all of his bones were out of joint, that he thirsted, that they gambled for his clothes. How many people in the tribe of Judah with the lineage of David, born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt, called a Nazarene, was crucified and have people gambling for their clothes when he was crucified? How about Daniel 9? Talk about a distinct prophecy. Daniel 9 says that 483 years after the command goes forth to rebuild and uh, restore the walls of Jerusalem, the Messiah will be cut off. You go, you could even do it generally. You can do it specifically. You can do it generally. When you go to the command Artaxerxes gave to rebuild and restore the walls of Jerusalem and you add 483 years, you come to approximately 32 AD when the Messiah was cut off. No wonder on the day that Jesus went into Jerusalem that Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees when they said, these people are, are, are committing blasphemy, stop them. And Jesus said, if I stop them, the stones are going to cry out and you should have known this day of your visitation. They had in their scriptures the day or the time when the Messiah was going to be cut off. He says, you should have known the times and the seasons. They were told to them. They're not told to us. We don't know when Jesus is going to return, but they did. We were given no Daniel 9. They had a Daniel chapter 9. So who was of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of David, born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt, who would be called a Nazarene, who would be crucified and gamble for his clothes, who would come around 32 AD. And all of a sudden, it becomes less and less for us to be able to say, well, that just doesn't persuade me. I'm just not confident. And that's only a handful of, listen, 
350 prophecies Jesus fulfilled. 350. The odds that anyone would fulfill all of them are astronomical. So much so that it persuades me. And I'm going to tell you, if Nostradamus had given us 350 accurate prophecies, he'd have a lot more followers today. If Edgar Cayce or you name the person could give any of the religious books could, that are out there besides the Bible had any prophecy, people would believe it. I was talking prophecy one day with a guy here that wanted to argue, just wanted to argue and I was giving him prophecies. And um, he said to me when he was done, I'm not impressed by any of that. And I said, it really doesn't matter if you're impressed or not. God gave you a heavy weight that you must deal with. And one day you will go, mm, this is the reason I dismissed it. And most often people don't dismiss it because of the lack of weight of evidence. He isn't asking us to blindly believe in Christianity. Really what happens is, is that the weight is so strong that the non-believer has to put their fingers in their ears and say, I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Not us as Christians putting our fingers in our ears and saying, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. We have such strong evidence for what we believe that they're the ones who are saying, I just don't believe it. You can say all those things you want to say, but I just don't believe it. It's like the people in the village of Nazareth who all of a sudden said, isn't his father Joseph here? And isn't his brothers here? And isn't his sister here? And is his mom here? They didn't choose to believe him because there wasn't evidence. He was doing every bit as many miracles in the region of Nazareth as anywhere else. They chose not to believe him because they couldn't gather with the concept that the Messiah would come out of their hometown. And so they rejected him. And so people overlook the evidence because they refuse to believe the evidence. It's not that the evidence isn't there. It's that we have the more sure word of prophecy. And when you take the more sure word of prophecy and you put that with the shared experiences and that with the eyewitness accounts and that with the manuscript evidence, all of a sudden you've got something that is very powerful. God said in Isaiah, I'm God and there is none like me. I am God who tells the beginning from the end. That's just the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. We're not talking about prophecies about Israel. In the last days, God said, I will cause my nation Israel to be born again in a day. What was it? March 18th, 1948, Israel was born again in a day. It prophesied that the Hebrew language would die and then come back again. The Hebrew language completely died and is a resurrected language to this day. It was foretold in the scriptures. It said that the land of Israel would become completely desolate and then become fruitful in the last days. It is incredibly fruitful today. And it was completely desolate, even as the Bible said. Prophecy is so strong that the, the, the school of higher critics in the early 1900s used to criticize that the Old Testament couldn't have been written when it said the Old Testament was because it's too accurate. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and they began to look back to see what passages in Isaiah were there, they, they claimed that Isaiah had been tinkered with in the Septuagint and in the, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament, in the Septuagint and in the Hebrew letters, and that it never said in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah was going to die for your sins. And that was added in by Christians later. But when they found the complete scroll of Isaiah in 1948, or excuse me, 1947, a year before they became a nation, they found that Isaiah 53 contained that very verse. This was hidden in a cave since 66 AD, and it was in there. No one could have tinkered with it to make it say that. And there was not only a complete copy, there was another 75% copy of it. 
And every, every book of the Bible was represented. So we were able to take the books of the Bible that were represented and compare that to what we had. And we found an incredible amount of, of well, what Jesus promised, or excuse me, what God promised in Psalms. I will preserve my word from generation to generation. We found that what we have today is so much like what they found in those caves in Qumran that it ought to bring a strong evidence for you and me. Now, here's what this should do for us. It ought to make us who are Christians so excited that we are believing the truth. It ought to make us stand up and say, I'm going to live for Jesus and I'm going to do what Jesus says because he's given me this evidence that's in the Bible. If you are not excited by the truth of prophecy being fulfilled and the amazingness of that, because I'm telling you, if Houdini had done it, people would have been amazed. If anybody's standing on the streets of, of modern day Las Vegas doing tricks would have done what we find in the pages of scripture, they would be a believer. And it ought to make us stand tall and firm and strong. I remember using this, I've used this evidence before to try to win people to Christ. And I found that it's, it works, but it works a lot less than telling someone Jesus loves you and you can have your sins forgiven, which is interesting because people are not saved by the more sure word of prophecy. That's how we are established. That's how we know what we believe. But people are saved by the gospel. Jesus loved you and demonstrated that love by dying on the cross for you. You know, I'll, I'll go and I'll give a message like this on prophecy. And then I think, man, I'm going to give an altar call and a bunch of people are going to get saved. And I'll give an altar call and no one will come forward. But then I'll give a message on the love of Christ and the demonstration of his love of Christ, for, for, of Christ. And all kinds of people will respond and get saved. Because that's the gospel. This, this teaching is not for the non-believer. It's for us. That we can know that we believe what's true. And that what I believe is true. And maybe, maybe that's what Ken Ham meant when he said, there's nothing you could show me that would make me believe evolution because I already have too much evidence to believe in creation. The evidence is too strong to believe in it. Maybe that's what he meant. That's why I said maybe if we sat him down, he would say something that is different than what it sounded like when he said it. Maybe the evidence, the evidence is so strong from prophecy that if the evidence of evolution came up, I'd have to really start, you know, bearing into things and looking into things because the evidence for the word of God is so strong. So we have the, uh, let me just read 19 and we'll stand and pray. Well, let's read it first and then we'll stand and pray. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You do good to heed this prophetic word made more sure until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's the return of Jesus Christ. We do well to heed what's written in the pages of these words until that day comes around. Stand with me, would you? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the more sure word of prophecy that we have, that we have confirmed these things that happened. We can go back and read what you said, and then we can go back and look at history and see what was done. And the more archaeology discovers, the more it backs up the Bible. And if the Bible is accurately archaeologically, if it's accurately scientifically, even though it's not a scientific book, if it's accurate in all of these different levels, then certainly it's accurate spiritually. And when you told us that Jesus died for our sins, we thank you that we can be forgiven and that we have with you eternal life. 
that we can have that grand entrance into heaven. And I pray that there would be no one here that would be shaken from their faith or shaken from the truth of what they find in the more sure word of prophecy. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.